How's it going, everybody, and welcome to The Candid Clarinetist, the podcast where we explore the lives on and off the stage of professional clarinetists, musicians, teachers, and leaders of the orchestra industry. My name is Sam Rothstein, assistant principal clarinetist and bass clarinetist of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and the host of The Candid Clarinetist. Our guest for today is the Associate Professor of Clarinet at the Butler School of Music at University of Texas, Austin. Before his teaching career, he was a member of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra from 2004 until 2016, spending his last five seasons serving as their principal clarinetist. He is a featured buffet crampon performing artist and has distinguished himself as a noted educator, soloist, chamber musician, and orchestral performer. I'm so pleased to welcome as our guest, Professor Jonathan Gunn. How's it going, Jonathan? Good, Sam. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for that lovely introduction. Absolutely, yeah. You you know you deserve nothing less. So um, <laughs> I'm going to start off with a little bit of an icebreaker question. I just like to kind of get the conversation going with all of our guests. So I not too long ago watched a movie entitled Yesterday, which is a movie where the protagonist is a struggling musician and performer. One day he wakes up and he is all of a sudden the only person to remember the band The Beatles. He spends the entire movie trying to recreate their songs in an attempt to share their music with the world once again. So my question for you is, if the clarinet was wiped away from the world's memory and it were up to you to share the music of the clarinet with the world, what piece would you choose to share first and why? And it can be repertoire of any kind, so solo, chamber music, concerti, or an orchestral piece. Wow, icebreaker. I don't know. That's a hard question. Um, yeah, it, it's it, it took me a while too because it's you know you're introducing a sound that nobody's ever heard before, so it's yeah, it's, it's it's a hard choice for sure. Yeah, you know it's 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 sort of like the question, what's your favorite piece to play? Um, that I I always struggle to know how to answer that question because I it it does depend. I think you know I have favorite pieces for lots of different genres, but you know I I think I'm sort of um, I see everything in my current light of the kind of things I play right now, which is much more, um, as you said, solo and um, chamber music. And um, and so I think what, what pops to mind, first of all, is um, what always pops to my mind, especially for solo clarinet or, uh, you know, clarinet and um, piano is something French. And the first thing that yeah. popped into my, my mind is the, is the Debussy Premier Rhapsody. Mm, um, yeah. I can't even, I'm not even sure I can tell you why that's what popped into my head. Um, but I do always, you know, I, I always sort of end up coming back to playing French clarinet music. I don't know if there's something about playing a, you know, a clarinet made by a French company or just the history of, of the clarinet in France in general, but um, that ends up being my, my favorite sort of repertoire to play, it, like I say, in that particular genre. Um, and I, I can't th think of anything more sort of representative of, of that, that type of music than Debussy. So I think that would probably have to be my answer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's such a beautiful piece. And I feel like, you know, because of its history of being a competition piece, a piece written for a competition, I think that it really showcases all of the best qualities of the clarinet. And yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and, and for me, too, I think it's one of those pieces that you can always put on a recital and no one would ever question why it's on a recital. It's just kind of like it's a great opener. It's a great closer. It's great in the middle of the recital just to break things up. And I think it's just a great showcase of the instrument. So that's that's a it's a very solid choice. Um, so my my answer is a little bit different, but I think it's still kind of basic in a way, which is. Uh, I would I would do the slow movement of the Mozart clarinet quintet, and I think mm. part of the reason for that is that it's just one of my favorite things to play. Uh, I just love it so much. Um, and then if we were going uh, out of the solo chamber music realm, I think I would I would go for the slow moon slow movement of the Rachmaninoff Second Symphony. Mm. Um, because I just, so cause I, I mean, 
it's so gorgeous so yeah and now you say these things and i think to myself oh yeah that's a great choice and that's a great choice and so again this is where i always have such a hard time answering something something fairly specific but yeah i mean as soon as you say mozart quintet um who, who could argue with that yeah and i think especially because uh the mozart quintet you know was written later in his life and i think it was and it was written later in his life because that's sort of when the clarinet became an actual orchestral instrument. And so he really captured what it could do that other instruments couldn't do in a way. It much to the yeah. same same way that Debussy did with the Premier Rhapsody. Um, but he sort of just introduced this instrument in such a glorious way, uh, you know, not only with the quintet, but the concerto and the Kegelstadt trio. So it's we're very fortunate as clarinet players to have a lot of good pieces to show off in, in that, yeah. in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's amazing because our, you know, our repertoire is compared to say a string instrument, our repertoire is so limited. Um, but, but then you look at like the concentration of just amazing works that we have to play. And it's, I mean, it's staggering sometimes, even though it's really not that many, you know, it's not that big of a, of a canon. So, um, but Certainly Mozart is way up there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was wondering if you could just give us a little bit of a rundown about yourself and uh, your career trajectory and where you grew up, what made you decide to play the clarinet, just basically where what what your life was what like have, in, what, until now. What have I done? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> All the stuff you've done. Um, and, uh, let's see, how long do you have? Um, yeah, right. <laughs> So um, I actually, I was born in England, in Sheffield, England, um, and um, started started um, doing various musical things at quite an early age. Um, that was in the 70s and um, late 70s, um, early 80s. And, and the, the music programs in the schools then were um, quite robust. And so um, in um, the equivalent of elementary school, I was playing through the school. I was playing violin. Um, I played in a guitar choir, handbell choir, sang in the choir, um, played in the orchestra. Um, and that was all just what was what was offered by the school. So um, I, I sort of took to all of that very, uh, very quickly and, and really enjoyed it. Um, but I was terrible at the violin. I mean, really terrible. Um, and you know my parents are musical, but not not professional musicians by any means. Um, and I'm I don't know. I've never really asked them about it, but I'm not sure if they realized how bad I was um, at the time. <laughs> so at least really if they didn't. knew that, that they wouldn't tell you, right? They right exactly, yeah. So, um, and we moved to the states when I was 11. And um, when we moved, I. Um, I wanted to keep doing music. I knew that for sure, but I said, I sort of used that opportunity to say, I I'd like to switch instruments. Um, sort of my, the main, um, instrument besides piano, piano was still going on for me at that point. Um, and I sort of recall, I wanted to play the trumpet. Um, and my parents, I remember one day, I have a terrible memory. You may learn this during the course of this <laughs> podcast, but, um, during the, um, at some point, my my parents went and met with the band director and and sort of discussed what I guess they they talked about what I should play and and lo and behold they come home and said well we've decided you're playing clarinet <laughs> so I actually okay didn't, there you go <laughs> yeah I didn't actually have any say in it or at least I didn't initially and um, I'm convinced that they just they just didn't want to hear a trumpet um, a beginner trumpet player uh, in their house so. Um, yeah, so that was so that was actually seventh grade for me, um, and and I started playing clarinet then, and and you know even though I it wasn't necessarily my choice, I, I I picked it up quite quickly. It was it was fairly clear. I mean, it's not like I was amazing or anything like that, but it was fairly clear that I, um, you know, I had an affinity for it, um, and um, I had a we had some very good family friends and and the daughter was one of the daughters was was a very good friend of mine and was an oboe player a very good oboe player she sort of helped me along with with pointers for wind playing and and so it sort of just it it just sort of happened like i say it wasn't a it wasn't actually a choice of mine um but but i quickly 
I quickly liked it um, and, and sort of moved on from there. Um, and so, um, I mean, I'll, I'll attempt to not give you every fine detail of my life, but as much um, as you want. <laughs> um, I, uh, so I went to Rice University for my undergrad, and actually the main reason I went there um, was because I did a double major in electrical engineering and, and performance. Um, and it was just one of these schools that just kept popping up as having really strong programs for both. Um, and I, I, in many ways, I mean, I shouldn't admit this, um, but I did not do nearly as much of the due diligence sort of researching schools and teachers and everything like that, that I would expect and tell all my students to do now. Um, I feel like in a lot of ways, I just sort of got lucky. It was, it was a good school um, for both of those programs. And I got there and for everybody that's been to Rice, you know, it's a gorgeous campus. Um, mm -hmm. yep. and very sort of, um, it's a very appealing place to visit. So I had gotten in there, I think early decision. And I just, um, I accepted that and and um, dumped all my other schools that I was that I was applying for. So that's actually when all was said and done, that was the only audition I took. I didn't end yeah, up auditioning sure. for any of the other schools. Um, so um, so I went to Rice and and um, had a bit of a strange um, clarinet trajectory there, I suppose. Um, I when I first went there, Richard Picard was was teaching there, who was well, now the former, former principal clarinet of the Houston Symphony. And he had just left the orchestra and, and um, was, was still doing some teaching at Rice. And that just didn't really work out ultimately um, for me as a teacher. Um, and so right around that time, David Peck had started um, playing in the Houston Symphony. Um, and so I started studying with him for a little while. So I did three semesters with, with Richard Picard. Then I did three semesters with David Peck. And then um, for a number of reasons, that didn't really work out very well. Um, mm -hmm. And so I actually, then my senior year at Rice, I studied with um, Patty Shans, who is now, now teaches at the University of the Pacific. And she was a, a DMA student at Rice at the time. And um, really, that was an absolutely fabulous year it was just sort of the perfect perfect person um for me at that particular time so um but it's strange because i you know four years of of my undergrad and um uh, i studied with three different teachers um so that i mean it was it was a very that was i found to be a bit of a strange path but um i after all of that kind of um, transpired, I decided, although I actually, I always loved being in school, um, I decided at the end of my four years, I would take a year off. Um, just, I knew I was gonna go back, but I just knew I wanted just to take a break for a year. Um, and at this at this point, I'd been to Aspen Music Festival and met Bill Jackson, who now teaches at mm -hmm. Vanderbilt, but was at um, yep. University of Northern Colorado at the time and played in the Colorado Symphony for many years as principal clarinet. And um, he had just um, started at uh, with the Pittsburgh Symphony and was teaching at Duquesne University. So I sort of knew I wanted to take a year off and then come back and study with him. So I decided to take the year off. And then uh, just on a whim in the fall of the my first year off, I took an audition that I just saw posted on a bulletin board somewhere for the Palm Beach Opera Orchestra. And it was a per service orchestra. And honestly, Sam, I didn't even know what that meant at that point in my life. <laughs> so um, I, but I took that audition and, and, uh, and won that. Um, subsequently sort of discovered that this was not like a job that was gonna sustain me. And so I actually um, figured out that I could stay in Houston um, and teach lots of clarinet students. As probably a lot of people know, there's a lot of teaching to be done in Texas, one of kind of the big big benefits of the place. It worked out that I could keep teaching um, a lot of students in Houston, I was teaching in the um, private lessons in the public schools and flying back and forth to, um, to Florida, to Palm Beach. And actually that was, I mean, that was seemed like the coolest thing ever. Um, I think at that point in my life, I was, I don't know, what was I, 21? Um, yeah, that's great. Sort of, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think I really knew, you know, sort of how lucky I was in some ways. And like I say, I mean, I wasn't, by the time I was paying money to like fly down there and, and do all that, that sort of stuff, it, I, I didn't really make a whole lot of money, but it just seemed like, it seemed like I was, I had hit it big because I was like, I'd hop on a plane and go fly to my gig and do my gig for a week or 10 days and go back. So um, that was a really cool experience. I, I really, uh, I really sort of value that that time in that orchestra. And then, so subsequently I, I, I went, I did go the following year. I went back to, I went to Duquesne university to do my master's with Bill Jackson. And actually I was, again, got lucky, I think, because the, the school allowed me to keep the job in Florida. So I would, I was sort of doing my master's and, and popping down to Florida, um, and getting that, getting that experience. Um, so how long would you like go down? Would it be just a week usually, or a couple weeks for production like, or? It, yeah, it was like 10 days. I can't remember sort of the exact schedule anymore, but they had it very streamlined to where, you know, from from the start of, you know, when they needed the orchestra to, to be done would last 10 days. And and sometimes they would be, the, the nice thing was the, the personnel manager, if, if there was sort of other gigs that could kind of be squeezed into that time, um, he would he would get me on those gigs too. So I would, I'd often go down and it'd be crazy 10 days. Um, but yeah, I, I could just... I wasn't really gone that long and I forget how many times a year that was. It was I sort of ended up being like once a month kind of thing for 10 days. So that's great. Um, yeah. yeah. So it was, I mean, it was really, again, it was a really fabulous experience. I, I really look back and so much of what I learned, I think about playing in an orchestra came from that experience. You know, I, I really, again, I just sort of, I just didn't really know what I was doing. I just sort of got plopped plopped in there. I, I still remember, again, I think I mentioned that I have a bad memory, but certain things like stick in my head. I remember we would do, we would also do Nutcracker every year in Palm Beach and, you know, do a bunch of them. And I'll never forget sort of getting plopped down to play it the first time. And, you know, it's, it's not the easiest piece in the world to play. It's actually, no, you know, no, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's pretty challenging. I mean, yeah. for a lot of us, you know, you, a lot of us at a certain point in your career, you've played it I, I forget, I counted it up at one point. I think I was up to a couple of hundred times at least. And so you sort of forget that. But I still remember that feeling of like, oh my God, this is really hard and I'm trying to keep up. And everybody there was just, it. they could just do it in their sleep. They'd done it so many times. They just knew it cold and it just seemed so easy and relaxed. And I sort of learned, I remember thinking then, okay, I got to get kind of, you know, get my stuff together and... I need to know stuff better when I sit down and, and play, um, you know, the orchestra. And I, I just learned so much from those, from those folks coming from, you know, again, I was 21 years old and didn't really have any clue. I don't think what I was doing. So I did that all while I was in, also while I was at Duquesne. And, and then when I graduated from Duquesne, I, I won a job in the, um, as principal clarinet in the Wheeling Symphony, another small job. Um, yeah. In West Virginia. Yeah, exactly. For me, a lot of what's happened in my life, and we'll probably get to some of this, you know, it'll start becoming apparent. I feel this way, but it's just lucky timing. I feel like I just got mm -hmm. really lucky with a lot of a lot of these mm -hmm. sort of things that, you know, I took a year off from school and I just I won a job at the beginning of that year. So and then, you know, I was done with my with my master's and then I won the willing the willing job. And um, that was also when I started teaching college. So I did that for a year and tried to sort. Of, I sort of did that and um, and the Palm Beach thing at the same time. So I had various iterations of Palm Beach and something else. And then the following year, I won the Fort Wayne Philharmonic Principal Clarinet. And then that was sort of the first. That was one, the first time I got sort of you know what you would consider a full time job um, mm -hmm. playing. And so then that was when I finally left um, left the smaller orchestras and. And so I was there for, uh, I was there for six years. And then again, I could make this so ridiculously long, but, um, I also had a weird path in Cincinnati. I originally, um, won a, a temporary position as associate principal in E flat in Cincinnati. And they, and I ended up doing that for three years before finally winning the, uh, the permanent job and then did that for another four years. I think that's right that adds up. And then when Richie Holly left to go to Rice, um, I became acting principal and did that for 
three and a half years and then won that job and then did that for a year and a half as permanent. So mm-hmm. before I left. So yeah, so I, I was I was acting associate, associate, acting principal, principal, and then I left. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's you had nowhere else to go. It was a little crazy. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, I guess so. So I left. Um, yeah, so that was I mean, that's I sort of very much abbreviated that um, that last 12 years, but uh, happy to talk about that more if you if you have specific things you want to know. No, that's great. And I think that well, one thing I want our listeners to know is like, in my opinion, one of the hardest things to do in our profession is not just, I mean, winning a job aside, but if you're playing a temporary position in an orchestra to actually win that position is so difficult because it can play for you and it all, it can also really play against you. And the fact that you did it twice is incredibly impressive to me because i don't know if i'd ever be able to do it you know yeah well thank you um and we can get into this more in a little bit but that you know the end i mean i i won the audition for principal clarinet um you know we you're gonna probably ask me about about why i left and there's more to that story but i did actually win that audition so um yeah yeah so i i did i did manage to do that twice and and which which was pretty cool i i mean it's sort of hard to see internally because we all have struggles with i mean auditions are just hard right so yes so it doesn't matter the circumstances they're all hard but yeah i mean i i would i would tend to agree that trying to sort of yeah do it within um from within the job is 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 tricky like you say it can it can certainly help but you know people know what they like about you the conductor might know what they like about you but you know they you play long enough somewhere and people are going to know your, you know, going to know your faults as well. And we all have faults. I mean, or maybe faults is even too strong of a word, but we sort of all have things that maybe we excel at and things that we're, you know, that we excel at less. Should we put it that yeah, way? Yeah, we all have our um, idiosyncrasies for sure. Yeah. So, um, but it was cool. I mean, the, the hard part, I think ultimately looking at that as a package was it was 12 years of kind of, somehow managing to feel fairly unsettled for that whole time just because I kept popping just when I kind of got settled as associate principal really I ended up being acting principal so although that was that was a really awesome time I managed to keep myself on my toes in a slightly uncomfortable way for maybe longer than I wanted yeah absolutely so piggybacking onto that I just want to know I know you've always been uh, as you've you've mentioned to us you've always been a teacher at the collegiate level at the high school level so I just want you to sort of describe what what went into your decision when you transitioned from playing principal clarinet to teaching full-time at a university because I there are a lot I mean you you said Richie Holly he's he's one of the more recent examples of that mm-hmm. um, in addition to yourself of just you know because I think that when at least looking at it from an outsider's perspective, like when I was a student, I was like, Oh, when I get a job in orchestra, I'm never leaving ever. Like that's what I want to do. <laughs> but the thing yeah. is there's more that goes into it than, than just that. I mean, I yeah. think that there's benefits to being a teacher and I just yeah. wanted to know like what your thought process was in that. Yeah. And I should add also Michael Wayne recently going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Research. Michael Wayne as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, it's a great question. And it's it's um, a very multifaceted answer for me because uh, in some ways, in some ways, I sort of felt the same way about not ever leaving. Um, and it's not so much I thought I would never leave an orchestra. It's just sometimes I found it hard to consider walking away from a job like that. You know, um, we we work so hard to sort of achieve that and. One of the things I think kind of gets ingrained into all of us as as young players is this idea that we get a job and then we get a better one and we get a better one and we get a better one and and not everybody of course feels that way but I think there's a lot of there's a lot of that in our profession and so certainly for me I felt that way and maybe that was outside influences and maybe it was me but it sort of as a result it kind of makes you feel like how could you or at least for me it made me feel like how how would you ever want to walk away from a major symphony orchestra job like this? Um, so that's sort of that's sort of one side of it, kind of uh, along the lines of what you were saying. But you know, really, the answer to your question is: I always knew I would 
switch to full-time teaching at some point. I just never knew when I would do it. Like, how would I know where and when? That was the thing I just never knew the answer to. Um, I had taught, as you said, I taught it, you know, I started teaching quite young in college level. And then I had, I had a, I had a gap when I first went to Cincinnati, I had about four years there where I wasn't teaching and I missed it so much. So then I ended up teaching at CCM for the subsequent eight years before I, before I left uh, Cincinnati. And I don't know, it just, it's just one of these things where it was becoming increasingly clear to me that I, I really loved the teaching and felt like that was something that I could continue to expand on. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, I was, I was getting to the point in Cincinnati when I was principal where I, I was having not, not having a hard time doing my jobs, but I felt like I wasn't able to commit the time that I really wanted to commit to the students at CCM. I mean, I still think I, hopefully I provided them what they needed, but it was very much, it was sort of lessons and that's kind of, that's kind of it. And there's nothing, you know, nothing wrong with that. Lots of people are in that sort of situation. And I certainly was in that situation for a number of years, but I was starting to kind of find that I, I was craving a little bit more of a um, immersive experience with the students, you know, being able to go to the concerts and just be able to meet, you know, they're walking down the hall and they can just come in and talk to me in my office, this, this sort mm-hmm. of thing um, that I really, I really didn't have. So a, a lot of those things were all going on. Obviously I'd seen, you know, Richie leave Cincinnati to go to Rice. And so, you know, there, and, you know, Dan Gilbert a number of years ago, I mean, that's been a while now, but um, obviously there's a number of people that have, that have made that transition at a, you know, maybe midpoint in their career. Um, mm-hmm. So a, a lot of those, a lot of those sort of things were floating around for me, but then, um, you know, as probably many people know, and I've, I've never been shy about talking about it, really the, the sort of what precipitated this, the actual time that I left was that, you know, as we discussed, I'd been playing uh, a number of years acting principal and then I won the job and I, uh, did that for a year, year and a half. Um, and then I actually didn't get tenure as, as principal clarinet. So, you know, I was tenured as associate, so I had my job, I could stay, but, um, you know, this is, it's funny. It's something that, you know, maybe people don't necessarily like to talk about these kind of things. I, I sort of pondered this sort of thing, given that you're, um, your podcast is the candid clarinetist. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's important for people to, you know, maybe students, especially to understand that it's, it's not all sort of, it's not all peaches and cream and roses. And, um, you know, that was, that was a really difficult moment for me as far as what should I do next? And actually what was, I, the, my decision to leave the orchestra was actually fairly immediate and fairly easy. I wasn't in a situation where I felt like I wanted to go back to the previous job I'd had after playing principal for, for five years. And, you know, a lot of people thought, thought I was crazy, <laughs> I think, for mm-hmm. that. Um, and a lot of people, one of the most common things I, that that's, people would say to me is, you know, people would kill to have that job. Why would you not? go back to that position. And that actually really resonated with me because I I found myself thinking, you know, I, I'm not sure that I'm going to be as happy as I want to be playing the clarinet, sort of shifting back into that role. Nothing, of course, wrong with that role. I just had sort of moved away from it. Um, And so I sort of found myself thinking, you know, let, let someone else have a chance and, and, um, let me see what else I can move on to, to sort of, to satisfy me musically. And so I had actually made the decision to leave the orchestra anyway. And, and most likely what I was going to do at the time was live in Chicago with my wife. It's a novel concept. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, um, and then, you know, I, I figured I would sort of commute to Cincinnati and just keep teaching at CCM. And that's when the, um, the UT thing sort of, popped into my view. So I actually sort of decided I would leave. And then the UT thing presented itself. And so again, I mean, I've given you sort of lots of information, but it's there's, 
there were lots of things floating around in my head that had been had been floating around for a long time and then i sort of had this catalyst that gave me the the push i needed um to you know just to move on and and then once again for the how many i don't know how many times it had been but once again in my life i feel like i just got very fortunate with timing and when i went and interviewed for the job at ut i mean i knew the moment i walked in the building that I would take the job if I got it. It just, there's something about it. It's a, it was a very appealing place. And so, so like I say, it's, it was, it was sort of a, it was sort of a funny transition, but, but a very easy one. And, and the question everybody, when I went and interviewed there, the question, of course, everybody asked me was, you know, why would you leave? You know, why now? Why do you want to leave, um, you know, this orchestra job and, and take this, this teaching position? And, and I always had the same answer. I sort of, said to you, which is, I'd always wanted to do it. I just never knew how I would know where and when. Um, and, and somehow yeah. I think I was waiting to have this moment of clarity that like, okay, now's the time to go look for a teaching job. But it really didn't happen that way. It was more that I got there and I realized, oh, now's, you know, now's the when, here's the where. And it was a, it was a very, in that regard, it was a very, very simple transition for me. Um, yeah, that's a long answer. Yeah, that's great, and and I and I appreciate you you sharing all that information. And I think it's it's interesting that you had these sort of urges throughout your career where you knew you wanted to teach. And and to be perfectly frank, like I mean, my career is pretty young. I mean, I've been playing in Indianapolis for five years now. But even I've had these thoughts of, man, maybe I want to teach, or maybe I want to just do something else entirely. And and it's totally normal to have those those postulations. And I think that if something happens or there's a certain catalyst, it does in a way give you the bump you need to just kind of take a dive in a different direction. So that's really yeah. interesting that, yeah. that, you know, you leaving Cincinnati and then all of a sudden this, this amazing opportunity showed up for you. Um, so I want to know what kinds of opportunities playing or otherwise have opened up for you now that you are a full-time professor and you're not playing in the orchestra. And also like, how does your schedule look different between the two jobs? Um, I mean, as far as the opportunities, I mean, it's funny in many ways, once you're a professor, I, I'm, you know, I'm just a freelancer, not just a freelancer. I should not say it like that, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm back to being a freelancer, which I actually never had to do very much of just again, just because I got some, some um, steady jobs fairly early. I, I, I didn't have to you know do a whole lot of that. But you know, really, I'm I I can pick and choose what I want to do, and and I've certainly had a lot more opportunities to um, go do recitals, um, quite quite a f lot more concerto appearances. I just released a CD, which is something I'd always wanted to do, and and just never never had the time. Yeah, congratulations for that. By the way, I haven't I haven't had the chance to listen to it, but I was very excited for you that that you were able to. Oh, do thanks. That. I'll send you one. We'll have to give me your address. Oh, great! Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, um, I think again, what sort of um, all of this stuff, all of your your questions, sort of tie tie into for me, all kind of intermingle. It's in a really interesting way. I I didn't necessarily leave the orchestra so I could go pursue this opportunity and that opportunity and this, you know, whatever the variety of things that have become available to me have been really exciting. And, and I think just the, again, the variety of what I'm able to play has been really interesting and really gratifying in a way that I um, even sort of surprised me. I've been learning so much solo repertoire or relearning so much solo repertoire because basically I hardly ever played it because I never had time, you know, and, and some people are better at that managing their time with that than, than maybe I, I was, but I felt like with the, you know, with the job in the orchestra, regardless of, of which position and then the teaching at the same time at CCM, I just, I didn't really have any time to do anything extra. So um, it's been, it's been great. I've, I, last summer was was crazy i i was all over the place i'm sort of lucky that that was last summer and not this summer but um <laughs> so you know i i went to 
um, uh, Taiwan and Thailand, and then I, I, well, I went to New York, and then I, I did something in in Taiwan, and then I was in Thailand, and then went, I went from Thailand to Montana to play a concerto, and um, I mean, it was crazy. I haven't, I've never done stuff like that, like you know, played a concerto in in Thailand, and then and then hopped a plane, made it all the way to um, Bozeman, and then Big Sky, Montana, and played Mozart um, concerto. I mean, it was so bizarre. It was, um, yeah. And you never would have been able to do that with the orchestra schedule. No. And, and, and that's, I think that's the thing that's, that's been really enjoyable and, and, you know, different orchestras are, are different as far as the ability to do more and less of that stuff. But I certainly feel like sort of the world of, of opportunities to do different things has has kind of just opened up for me in a way that that wasn't there before and it's um i think i'm a better clarinetist for it because it's forced me to explore other things you know um learn stuff that you know i i wasn't you know really work on new things and 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 practicing hard to learn something new as opposed to you know polishing up um a symphony that i played 50 times um Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, that that's been really, really rewarding, I must say. Um, and you asked me about the schedule. I mean, the schedule is, I I, I found especially the first year. Um, I have to admit, I was exhausted. Yeah, <laughs> I was I really tired. <laughs> um, you know, it's in it, you know, it's more hours. Um, and it's obviously the, you know, you could have a, not to say playing in an orchestra is easy by any means, but you know, you might have a light week, you might have an easy week, you know, you might be playing some pops or something, you know, um, not to say that we of course don't all want to put in a hundred percent for everything we play, but you know, you don't ever really have a light week in a job. Um, in a, I don't think in a full-time teaching job, you know, you gotta always be on for, for those students. Um, and it's very intense, obviously, a lot of the time. So, but the, the flip side of it for me is that there's so much more flexibility with it all. And I try not to take advantage of that because, you know, it's good for students to have, have some, um, stability in lessons and stuff like that, but they all know that, that, you know, that's sort of part of the deal with the teachers, you know, the professors at, at UT, you know, we're off doing, doing our thing you know, so that we can keep honing our own crafts, which can, in you know, and which benefits them. So they're very understanding about all that. And that's been great because it's, it's something where if I'm asked to go do um, a performance, a concerto, chamber music, whatever it is, um, I have the flexibility to just, just as, as long as I'm making sure that I take care of, you know, what my students need, um, I can move things around as I need. And that's the answer to your, your question of sort of, kind of comparing the schedule to me that's the that's the biggest thing it's they're both hard they're both you know it's like people you know people with orchestras sometimes might say oh well it's only you know it's only 20 hours work a week or something well of course we all know that there's a lot of extra hours that go into that and i would say it's it's really no different i find one of the hardest things with my schedule now is just making sure that i schedule time to practice um when you're in the orchestra, I mean, it's one thing in my earlier days where sort of everything is new and you're frantically learning repertoire, but certainly later on, you know, you might have a week where, you know, you're not having to put in as many hours learning stuff. And obviously you've got to maintain your playing, but also you're just playing, you know, you're just playing so much in the orchestra that you're just getting a lot of hours in, um, which is, you know, just good. I mean, you need to you need to obviously work on things, but, but just, you know, some time in on the instrument just by doing your job. Now, obviously I don't necessarily get nearly as much of that. So I, I find that I have to, I have to really be careful to schedule, you know, really schedule in practice time, preferably before I do all my, my teaching so that I can, you know, to make sure that I, I maintain my playing, you know, maybe in between gigs and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, I found, whenever I'm most productive practicing, I'm scheduling it in my calendar anyways. Cause otherwise it's like, it's like this thing that's kind of sitting there and you know, you should be doing it, but right. yeah, 
you know, like, but if I put it in my calendar, it's like, okay, I have an hour here that I'm just going to practice because it's there and it's a, it's an event in my calendar. So, right. um, I know if, for me, it's, it's hearing you talk about this, it's kind of motivating me to schedule my practicing anyways, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's interesting to hear that, that when you're teaching full time, you kind of have to do that. Otherwise it just gets lost. Yeah, certainly for me. And if I, you know, if I have a long day of teaching and I mean, anybody that does a lot of teaching and certainly I would imagine experience this, but you know, it's just, it's hard to it's tired. It's tiring. It's very, it's, it's draining in a good way. I mean, again, going back to sort of what I first came here and, and certainly still now, I mean, um, that first year that was particularly you know, just making that shift. I'd been playing in the orchestras for 20 something years at that point. And so making that shift to just, um, you know, sort of teaching, you know, for long stretches of time for multiple days in a row that I hadn't done before, you know, I would sort of get home and be and be exhausted, but be totally invigorated. It was really cool. I mean, it was really, that was how I knew sort of right away that it was, I, I had definitely, you know, I had made the right decision. It was the right time for me to do this and because it was yeah it was tiring and but I really it just was uh, I found myself much more invigorated and sort of enthusiastic than no I don't want to say I yeah. wasn't that way before but you know um felt it felt more so so but yeah that's it, awesome you know it's 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 definitely it's definitely tiring at first especially I think getting used to the new just just changing that whole system of what work is like yeah, that's great. And and I think that it's always good to find different forms of motivation and inspiration. And, you know, the fact that you just had this, it wasn't a career shift, but it was certainly a, a big change. And, and it, it, you know, hear that it reinvigorated your passion and, and gave you all this energy to, to practice again. And uh, not that you weren't practicing before, but to certainly, yeah, well, you know, you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So uh, that's that's really great. I'm I'm really glad to hear that. So if I'm a student at UT, what is what does my curriculum look like in terms of clarinet? Like I know people have excerpt class or equipment class or master classes or like what is what is what can I expect as a student there? We have a weekly studio class, and and I have a fairly large studio, which sometimes um, just makes some of the sort of class scheduling a little bit more complicated, I find. But because I like, first and foremost, I like for all of my students, of course, to to play in studio class, to play for each other. I mean, I think that this is like, um, I mean, I'm sort of stating the obvious here, but it's it's so important, you know, that they get as many opportunities opportunities as they can to get up and perform for each other or for whoever, just because that's whatever we choose to do in music, it's going to involve something along those lines, auditions, um, recitals, whatever. So what I like to do is have all my, you know, we, we schedule all my weekly studio classes um, kind of around everybody playing at some point, at least once. And then I like to kind of fill in the other ones with various other topics. So I don't have like a separate like read class, for example, although I'd love to, but I, I'll do read topics in studio class, you know, once a semester or something like that. And, and various other, it's, it's a, it's a moving target. I try to fill in as many different things as I possibly can um, into the extra studio time that we have as well as bringing guests, of course, um, so that they can be exposed to people other than me. So that's studio class has sort of a multifaceted function for me um, at UT. We do also have um, for the younger students, I have a scale and technique class that um, one of my TAs teaches. Okay, cool. Yeah, so um, it's a great opportunity for the TA to do some teaching, you know, obviously helps my load a little bit. And it's just a nice, it's a little incentive for the younger students to work on their scales. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I need that incentive too sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I t I tell them this this story all the time, and and I again, this is something I should, probably shouldn't admit, but um, I remember going to Duquesne for my master's and studying with Bill Jackson. And by the way, the other teacher that was there at the time was Mark Nuccio because he was second in Pittsburgh. Uh, at the time. And Mark had studied with Bill and Bill and Mark had both 
um, studied with Marcellus and and I ended up when Bill Bill actually left my second year at Duquesne. Bill actually left left Pittsburgh, and so I studied with with Mark. So you know, I I feel a tight lineage with with those guys. Um, but anyway, they they did a, a scale a scale test every semester, which I do also at UT, and I just remember realizing when I got to um, Duquesne, the like the first semester of my uh, masters my scales were terrible. I hadn't really had anybody really make me work on them. So, I mean, I could play scales, but not like just, just knew that, you know, just be able to just knock through my scales. And so I remember being like very, very embarrassed and decided, okay, this is, you know, I got to just learn these things and, and did, and it sort of set myself to task and, and, and got my scales really learned for the first time in my life. I really sort of, I appreciated, although I didn't feel that at the NISA at the time, I, I appreciated just the structure of something like that to, you know, just to help incentivize the, the, the students to, to work on their scales. Scales are always something that I need to come back to uh, whenever I'm sort of going through some sort of issue. It, it always sort of grounds me and, and gives me a little base of the pyramid to sort of build on. So uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is, if someone wants to do what you do, teach at a university, would you recommend that they first get extensive playing experience, sort of like what you did, or do you think that going the straight academic route, where it's like bachelor, master's, doctorate, do you think that's a viable path as well? Yeah, I mean, I think they're they're certainly both viable paths. Um, yeah, that's a that's another sort of tricky question. I I think I think in many ways that the the answer in an ideal world lies somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, I don't have a DMA. I had conversations with my students about this and I, you know, I always sort of joke about it that like, you know, I have the equivalent of a DMA. It just took me 22 years to get it um, right. before going to, going to UT. So, um, you know, certainly I think the path that I took um, gives me some practical experience that is, you know, um, both useful for me as a teacher and also probably you know, fairly appealing to my students, just like, just like many other teachers around the world, you know, the, but at the, at the other, so the other end of the spectrum, the reality is becoming more and more that, that in order to get a university teaching job of almost any level, um, you, you sort of need that DMA. So it's, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a quandary, I think, for, for younger students right now. I think there's a, a somewhat of a feeling that you you just have to go out there and get that DMA or do, you know, what I did or Richie or Michael. Uh, but that's, you know, not everybody's, you know, going to be able to necessarily do that. That's, it takes a lot of luck for all those pieces, you know, to sort of all the pieces of the puzzle to fall together, to sort of follow that track. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think in an ideal world, people would, would, if they could, maybe you get the masters and then you get some, you get some, you know, some practical experience, whether it's during the masters or during the DMA or, or in between um, the masters and the DMA, you know, it's not like you're going to just sort of pop off and win some, you know, huge audition and then go back and do a DMA. It's, it's, of course, that's not really how, that's not really how it works. But I think if this, if, you know, having that practical experience, whatever that may be, taking auditions, winning auditions, um, or, or whatever, it doesn't even have to be, I mean, it's not all about auditions and orchestra, you know, orchestra playing, of course, not all of my students even want to do that. Um, so obviously there's, there's many different sort of paths that, um, clarinetists can take as far as what career path they want and maybe how that would affect where they want to go to school. But I, I do think that, the DMA is becoming sort of increasingly requisite to have. So ideally find, find some mix of those two things, I think is, is sort of the answer. Easy to say, not, not so easy to do. Yeah, no. And, and, and I'm at, I'm in a weird, not that this is again, not about me, but like I only have a bachelor's degree and I have a job in an orchestra, mm -hmm. but I'm not a principal and, you know, my orchestra is not the Cincinnati Symphony or the Boston Symphony. So I'm in this like weird no man's land where like I don't have the education 
and I also like don't quite have the name recognition yet. So it's like it's yeah. sometimes I, I wonder like sort of what my path would be. But I think having the experience is sort of vital because you're in the end, you're teaching these students to do something. And right. the easiest way to teach them how to do it is how you did it yourself in a lot of ways. And certainly like, I mean, I think there are teachers out there that have a much more structured pedagogical way. I'm very much exactly what you said. I'm, I'm teaching what I did. I mean, not exclusively. I try to, obviously, I just because what I did work for me doesn't mean it'll work for all my students. So I'm always seeking out, you know, other ways. But um, I certainly rely heavily on on that practical experience. And, and that's something I can bring bring to the table for my students. I can tell them, you know, about, you know, all the many auditions that I didn't win <laughs> before then yep. winning one, you know. And again, that's that's just one way. There's so many different ways that a teacher can be effective. But certainly for me, that's that's something I like to be able to um, rely on. And I think it brings credibility um, in the in the eyes of of students. And I, I mean, not to always sort of backtrack on what I say, but it's not to say that other people in other situations aren't credible. It's just that um, on the surface. That also just helps. It it helps someone if they see a teacher that has had had that experience. That's that looks appealing also because of the because of the experience. So yeah, um, I mean, like if Michael Jordan tells you how to shoot a jump shot, you'd probably listen, <laughs> right? You, you yeah. know, <laughs> like he's made plenty of them in his career. So yeah, and and again, it's not. Yeah, it doesn't take away from doesn't take away from not having there's you know there's other ways of of getting at that stuff too but i for me i definitely like having that having that background of the experience yeah absolutely uh so i'm kind of an equipment guy so i just wanted to know what what you're playing on equipment wise and uh if not what you're playing on you recommend to your students is there something that you would recommend to your students uh sort of like your 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 go-to home base, uh, mm -hmm. setup. You know, I like, you know, some people like the vintage mouthpieces and that's not exactly something mm -hmm. that you can recommend to an incoming freshman because right. they're not going to drop a thousand dollars on a mouthpiece. So it just, just curious what your setup is and then sort of what you, you throw your yeah. students towards. Yeah. So uh, my setup right now is, I mean, it's changed several times over the years, but, um, I play a tradition buffet tradition. I was part of the five U S folks that, that were involved in the sort of the design of that. I actually have the, there's a tradition, I guess they're calling it sort of the tradition two. It's, it's like the sort of, um, is it the one with the little medallion down this, the vertical? Yeah. Medallion? So I, yeah. So I have, yeah. I have that now. I'm not, it's actually not sort of in full, uh, not quite 100% into my rotation yet, but, um, but I'll be, I was playing on the original one and now I'm sort of transitioning to that one. I play a Casper, uh, Cicero mouthpiece. So I've played vintage mouthpieces my whole, my whole life. Well, not my whole life, but since college. And I, I've got a number of different ones, but I've got, I've got three in particular. I sort of rotate through. I play a gold Momo ligature. Um, I'm curious about those because they've kind of yeah. made like a big impact recently, at least yeah, amongst right. colleagues, but like nobody really talks about them or like where huh. you can get them. Yeah. And like you go to the website uh, and it's like, you know, it's, it's basically like a DDoS yeah. website, you know, and you, yeah, there's no yeah, order well, form or anything. So I'm just curious, like, where are you, you know? Well, I, first of all, I have to say, I, I would be willing to bet I was the, the first one playing on one of those in the U.S. at least. Um, okay. Yeah. Although Richie, Richie and I kind of did it at about the same time, but I actually think I, I started right before him. Um, and that was actually a, a number of years ago. We, I forget, well, it was before he left the orchestra. We were on tour in, in Japan. So he left the orchestra, I think, nine years ago. So we, we've actually been playing those, you know, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years. And there's a few other folks that have just sort of popped up, like you say, just just maybe the last couple of years. And so they're getting a little bit more traction. You know, they, they are hard to get. I bought I bought my original. Well, I bought I bought two. I bought an E flat one as well as a B flat. And um, in Japan, in Tokyo, Richie and I both both bought them and subsequently i have i have purchased several more 
Um, but yes, just by contacting the maker through that website that you found. Yeah, because I believe they're all like handmade and hand shaped. They and are. Like, they're, yeah, it's like it's like a, a piece of art. So yeah, they're 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 quite beautiful. They're really well made. Um, although I have had a couple of issues with them, um, a couple of them broke. But you know, I I think they're great ligatures. Obviously, I play them. I've been playing on them for a long time. I you know, there's so many good ligatures out there right now. I think. It's, you know, you can get hold of a Momo and I certainly, if people get, can get their hands on one, I think it's, they're worth trying, but I, I think there, there are plenty of options, but you know, it is, it is interesting how they've sort of gained a little, a little traction lately, but um, yeah. And I play on a, um, I play on uh, Dodario Reserve Classic Reads. Uh, I was also, you know, part of, of working on those when they first came out, Mark Nuccio and I did. I played handmade reeds that I made, you know, I made myself from tubes for 20 years. Um, wow. And so, yeah, and I loved it. And I may even go back to it one day, but I'm really happy with those, those reeds for myself. And, and they've, they've been working out really well for me. So I must admit, I've gotten a little bit used to just taking reeds out of a box now. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and not, but I, I do actually enjoy making reads, so that that is something I may go back to at some point. And then I plan a, a currently I plan manic barrels. And so to answer your other question, I I don't have a stock setup for my students. This is one thing that is sort of integral, I think, to the way I I I teach. I I just don't believe in sort of setting up everybody the same way. It just doesn't work for me. It, you know, for other people, I think that's, you know, that's the way they like to teach. And there's, again, as, as I keep saying about things, there's nothing wrong with it. There's so many different ways to teach. There's nothing wrong with any of them. Um, uh, but for me, I prefer to find what my, what, what works for my students, what they're looking for, what sound they're looking for, what they're sort of trying to create and get them to help them figure out what that is and then help them find the setup that that enables them to have that. Um, so, you know, I don't, if someone comes in playing on a different brand of instrument, I'm not going to tell them to change. I'm not going to, you know, say, okay, everybody, you play on this mouthpiece. I Now, that being said, you know, I have students come in that are playing on things that I think are problematic for them. They're causing them issues. Sure, whether, yeah. You know, whether it be an instrument or a mouthpiece or whatever. And then certainly I'm going to, uh, I'm going to make, changes to those sort of things but i really do try and um cater all of that as much as i can to well again using using my sort of role to help them find what they want rather than telling them you know this is the sound that you want and this is what you need to play to get it um so now that being said if someone came to me and says i i need a new instrument you know i'm still playing on a you know, plastic clarinet and I need to, I want to go, you know, my goal is to come to UT and study with you and I need an instrument. You know, I'm probably going to, my stock thing, I'm going to tell them to look at something like a buffet R13. I mean, to me, that's still, yeah. um, kind, it's kind of, of the, the standard. Yeah. It's the standard. Yeah. And it's what I played for many years. And, and, um, I just think it's a, it's sort of a no brainer. You know, anybody at that point can, you know, can sort of morph away from, from that into other models, but I think that's a pretty a pretty good one to start with. And, and as far as mouthpieces, it's the same thing in many ways. I'm a I'm a Daddario artist. Um, when I'm not playing on my Casper mouthpiece, I play on a Daddario X5. I don't necessarily. I just I just don't believe in forcing all of that stuff on my students. What I do want is for them to all make sure that they've if they're looking for something different, or if we're if we've decided that they should look for something different, if they're making a change, I just want them to, to, to try multiple options. So yeah. uh, I believe, you know, I believe in my students trying Daddario's, trying Van Dorn's, um, whatever else is out there. I like to start with those sort of things because, you know, they're inexpensive and relatively easy to get. And, and, and you can play them professionally. I mean, it's not like it's, you know, you don't need exactly. a yeah. $700 mouthpiece to sound really good. I mean, you can find hundred dollar mouthpieces exactly. that sound just as good. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's sort of one of those things. It's like, if you, 
I'll often tell them, look, if you should start with this, if for some reason it, it's not it's not ultimately what you want, you you can't go wrong having that in your sort of arsenal of mouthpieces. I've I've got I've got a bunch of them that you know I could easily go back to if I if I needed to. So, and I just think it's a it's a good it's an easy way to find something a bit you know a bit more consistent than once you you know go out sort of getting into the more handmade things, custom stuff like that. And again, you know, I mean, I'm here I am, I'm, I'm playing out a vintage mouthpiece that, you know, has been hand, you know, has been refaced various times. So that's what I do, but I don't think that necessarily every student needs to feel like they need to rush out and do that. So, and, and again, just like mouthpieces, same thing with reads. Um, you know, I would tend to make sure that my students have tried, you know, tried at least, at least Van Dorns and Daddario's. If they want to make a change, if they're on one, I tell them that they should at least try the other and, and, and vice versa, so just to see, to see what's out there and see what works. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that there is, there is no one setup for every single person. It's just like embouchure, tongue position, oral cavity, this, you know, there's certain standards that we want to, uh, that certainly we want to teach and get kind of consistent, but, you know, our physical structure is, we're all different. So there's variations in all of that that then I think transfer over to things like mouthpieces and, and reads. So it's a bit of a, it can be a bit of an arduous process, I think for, you know, for some students, but I think if, if they figure out how, how to explain what's in their head, what they want to sound like, what they hear, hopefully with my guidance, I can help them, you know, find that sound um, and find the setup that enables them to have that. Well, that's great advice, and and I think you're right. There's 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 really no one size fits all, and even amongst I mean, there's this old kind of line of thinking that like everyone in this in the section needs to play on the same stuff, and you know, I mean, you look at the Chicago Symphony, and two people are playing buffets, someone's playing on a Selmer, right. someone's playing on a Yamaha, and they sound great together. So I don't think there's yeah. any, you know, I don't think there's any need to to sort of put your students or, or anybody in, in a sort of box and say you have to play on a certain right. thing. Um, yeah. So, so great. Thank you so much for, for your advice on that. Sure. So I'm going to sort of flip the switch to your personal life a little bit. So I'm, I'm a huge okay. dog person and I'm always looking at your, your social media. You have, you have three dogs, I believe. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we do three. Yeah. Do so you want to tell yeah. tell me a little bit about them? <laughs> sure. Um, Let's see. Um, and I, and whenever someone says, I mean, I suppose I must post a lot of stuff too, but whenever someone says, you know, they, they see all our dogs on social media, I figure they, they must be friends on social media with my wife. Cause she, she trumps me on the, uh, okay. dog, on the dog, the dog posting. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. We, we've got three dogs. We have, um, let's see from oldest to youngest. We have Dolly who is a French bulldog. She is, she's creeping up on 10. She's almost 10. Um, and she's a pied, um, French bulldog. Um, so for people who don't know what that is, that's like, um, sort of, I mean, black or white really, but she's, she's white with sort of black or brindle spots. Um, and another little tidbit of information, she is the half sister of Richie's dog, Gidget. Oh, so, no way. Um, cool. Yeah. Our dog, our dogs are actually related. Um, <laughs> Richie had a huge hand, <laughs> he had a huge hand in convincing us to get her. So um okay. props to richie for uh, for talking us into getting a french bulldog and then um we have a nine-year-old black lab named spencer and um and then we have a one and a half year old french bulldog named murphy who is uh crazy but yeah <laughs> yeah they're cute man uh, i have a, a one and a half year old corgi named augie and ah. he's just uh He's a blast, man. This uh, something about dogs is like when you come home from orchestra or teaching or whatever, they just they don't care at all, and it's just right. like a really great thing to have sitting at home. Uh, so yeah. adding on to this, so what kinds of things do you do like away from the clarinet that you enjoy and helps you maintain like a good work life balance? Like, is there any hobbies that you have yeah. or anything you enjoy doing? I do. I I mean, I'm I'm completely addicted to golf. Um, as oh, anybody that one. That okay. knows yeah. me, yeah, knows, but <laughs> I mean, that's sort of, that's sort of the main thing I will schlep my golf clubs 
anywhere I go to do, you know, if I'm playing a, you know, concerto somewhere or I'm playing chamber music, if there's golf to be played, I'll take my clubs with me and figure out a way to play. So that's sort of my most extreme hobby. And that's been going on. For, I always feel like I haven't been playing for that long, but I don't know. It's probably been 20 years at this point, but so I, I play as much golf as possible. I, you know, it's, it sort of comes and goes with the schedule. Sometimes the, the, the teaching schedule just kind of takes over a little bit and I, and I have to kind of step back on the, on the golf for a while, but I try and get as much as I can done of that done over the summer. And then, um, you know, I do a lot of, I mean, this is not necessarily a, a hobby, but obviously, um, as you know, and some people may know, um, my wife plays in the Chicago symphony. So we end up doing a lot of traveling back and forth just to visit each other. So that, that ends up eating up some, some of our extra time. Uh, I mean, the travel part of it, um, just, just going sure. back and yeah. forth. So, but you know, when obviously, yeah, you transition from the dogs, that's a big part of our, our life. It's been nice lately because we've, we've all been together in the same place for an extended period of time, which is yeah not something we've done done in a while and we do also have down here in in austin we have a a boat on lake travis so that's another thing that we we try to do as much of as possible yeah well thank you jonathan for joining us today if anyone is looking to study clarinet at the university of texas austin definitely check out jonathan and his studio i know that my teacher Lori bloom really recommends him as a teacher and he's a great person and great teacher and just a, a, an overall good guy to learn from and you'd be going to a fantastic school. So thanks for taking the time to talk to us and tell us about your life and your career and your experiences. And I know that everyone will have learned something from this episode, including myself. So for our new listeners out there, please make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at the Candid Clarinetist, and follow us on Twitter at Candid underscore Clarinet. Once again, I am Sam Rothstein, and thanks for tuning in to the Candid Clarinetist.